Man, I'll give you three guesses as to who wrote that script. Um, <laughs> only one man I know is that punny. So, all right. Well, hey, welcome. Uh, so glad you're here. I'm Pastor Matt. Uh, if I haven't seen you for a while, it's because I was on sabbatical or you haven't been coming to church. One of those two. And uh, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that I'm here. And uh, we, we're, we're jumping into the book of Genesis chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, would you open that up to Genesis 18? We are in our third week of what we're calling kid-friendly summer Sundays. And, and so we're trying to, to uh, explore this character in the Bible named Abraham. And this guy who is a grandfather of faith, the Bible says. Uh, and, and we're looking really at four traits that this guy Abraham demonstrates, that he exhibits, that are meant to be true for the entire family of Abraham, all who walk in his footsteps of faith in the living God. And so uh, we're going to be looking at another dynamic or dimension of his character and faith today. Uh, Before we do, I have to tell you, I am a huge fan of Jimmy Fallon and The Tonight Show. Do we have any Fallon fans? All right. Way more people watched Fallon in this service than last service, so I feel a little bit better. But uh, uh, it's very easy and I, for my wife and I, who who, who don't, uh, we don't watch like The Tonight Show proper. We just binge watch YouTube clips. So we fall into what we call the Fallon Vortex. And we're like, which is hours later, we've like, what happened? Where are our kids? What's going on? Um, and so one of my favorite things that Fallon does is called the Wheel of Impersonations or the Wheel of Impressions. Anybody seen this one where they, he has a guest on the show and they push a button and then it like rings up a, a subject of conversation and then like the person to impersonate, right? And it's pretty fun. So whether it's like Kevin Spacey doing Michael Caine or Christina Aguilera doing Britney Spears, it's pretty funny, right? And so... Uh, we all know, though, that to capture the tone and the voice inflections and, and vocal patterns of somebody else, you have to spend a lot of time listening. So it's super funny on on the surface to be like, wow, man, Kevin Spacey sure sounds like Michael Caine. But then you're like, what? how many hours did he have to watch Michael Caine video to get that? And so it takes a lot of time to listen. In order to get good at reflecting somebody else, you have to spend a lot of time watching and listening to them. And I know, hey, kids in the room, easy or hard to listen? Hands up for easy to listen when you're in the middle of something. Hard to listen when you're in the middle of something? Yeah, absolutely. You actually have to make a practice of listening. And that is actually the word that best describes this passage of Abraham uh, and his story and his relationship with God today. And it is the Hebrew word Shema. Now, uh, Masterpiece Joe said it means keeping the way of the Lord. It actually means to hear. So, sorry for the wrong script to Joe, wherever that went. So, it is the Hebrew word for to listen, to understand in order to obey from the heart. It's, it's literally to hear. And this word Shema is, is the beginning of the famous Shema prayer in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was prayed twice daily in ancient Israel and it is prayed twice daily by Jews today. It is the prayer that begins Shema Israel, Yahweh Elohenu Yahweh Echad, which means, here Israel, Yahweh, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. In fact, the passage goes on to describe all that is involved in the Shema way, that it is to keep the commandments that God's given, to impress them on our children and our children's children so that they learn all that it means to know and follow God. Later in the same passage in Deuteronomy, Moses instructs the people reiterating the heart of the great Shema. And he says, Now Israel, what does the Lord our God ask of you but to fear the Lord our God and to walk in all of his ways, to love him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and observe all he's commanded you. And so this Shema kicks off an entire way of life for the people of God. The Shema has to do with listening to God's word. It has to do with obeying him from the heart to keep his ways in a world that doesn't and to pass those ways on to generation after generation. In other words, the Shema becomes associated not only with a worldview about who God is, but a way of following him with him at the center. So today, we're going to hear from Abraham's story how this Shema way applied to Abraham's life and then how it has to do with us and how we live. So let's hear from the scriptures today from Michael. Yeah. Genesis 18.16, you can read along with us. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham looked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about... For Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went to Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep away sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it for be it from you to do such a thing to kill with the wicked treating the righteous and the wicked alike for be it from you will not the judge of all earth do right alright this is God's word thank you buddy well we kick into this strange story about Abraham and uh And it takes place in the hills, the cliffs above the plain, the valley below, where there are two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Two cities that have a reputation for being the most violent and most messed up societies that the world had known during the time of the Bible. And and, 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 in fact, this scene of impending coming judgment starts earlier in the chapter with three visitors coming to Abraham, knocking at the flap of his tent. And it's God and two angels, and they have this dinner meeting where Abraham shows hospitality to to God and then God says, this time next year, your wife Sarah is going to be pregnant with the child that I've promised. In other words, God just comes to reassure Abraham that even with the, the wicked flourishing in the valley below, he's here to keep his promise and he's going to to keep his word no matter what the weight has meant so far. Now, they get up from dinner and they walk over to inspect the kind of the situation in the valley below. 
And, and, and so they kind of, they leave their camp and they head out to check out what's going on. And it's this moment, just like when Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Luke, looking down from the cliffs on the Mos Eisley spaceport, never will you find such a wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Right? Okay, so this is, this is kind of the way I see this scene unfolding. And so you have Abraham and Yahweh and the droids, and they're looking at Sodom. And, uh, and Sodom is this wretched hive of villainy. And God is headed down to check out the situation. And he's, he's there on this kind of fact-finding mission. Is, are, are things as bad as they are? And, 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 and if they are, there's going to be a judgment. And the cities are going to be destroyed. And the author of Genesis tells us why this is going on. He wants us to be sure that God is not just a kind of fly-off-the-handle, uh, angry maniac. In fact, the reason... God has come to check out the situation and bring about a judgment on the cities is because, the author of Genesis says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that their sin, and their sin is so grievous. And so this word outcry is, is a very specific word in the Old Testament that, that is uh, used throughout the, the Bible as the cries of the oppressed. These are the tears of victims of abuse and violence. It's the tears of the abandoned kid. It's the tears of the, 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 the spouse who has been abused. It's the tears of the people who have been neglected and beat up on and taken advantage of. It is the outcry from oppression and injustice. And so God has come into this situation because he hears the outcry of the oppressed. And we'll, we'll get this again in the Torah when God hears the cry of his people as slaves in Egypt and he brings a deliverer, Moses. And so this is a pattern for God to pay attention to the outcry of the distressed. And, and eventually the, the prophet Ezekiel will sum up what was happening spiritually and socially in Sodom. And this is, this is what Ezekiel says as a description of the spiritual and social condition, condition of the city. He says, this is actually an indictment on Israel. He says, now this was the sin of your sister, Sodom. It says, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. This may not fit your normal kind of go-to reference when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, but this is what the prophet Ezekiel says is a spiritual and social condition. They were a heartless people to those in need. And so we live in a world that follows the model of Sodom. We live in a world that, that lives within the Sodom paradigm, which is unconcerned, unjust, arrogant. It may sound familiar to you from some such contexts as your life. Right? And uh, it is this world of callousness toward the need of others. If you, if, you, if you have any doubts that the world is like this, just go board a flight anywhere in the United States and watch people push and shove for overhead space. Okay? And, and you will see that the spiritual condition of our own world is much the same as that of Sodom. And so this conversation between Abraham and God reveals the kind of person Abraham is being called to be. It reveals the kind of character Abraham is to have in a world characterized by the lack of concern for the vulnerable in a world like Sodom. It reveals what kind of community we are to be 
in a world characterized by the heartlessness of Sodom. And so God says to himself, there's some divine self-talk, he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This is this impending judgment. And anytime somebody says to you, I don't know if I should tell you this, they're about to tell you, right? Because that vocalization is really just a way of saying, I've decided I'm going to trust you. Please be trustworthy. And so this scene with Abraham and Yahweh is a scene of two friends sharing in something personal, two partners working out something very personal. And God then tells us why he's inviting Abraham into this moment. It's because he says, and look at verse 19 with me, he says, for I have chosen him right, that he may command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. So I've chosen him is a very relational word. It's, I've known him. I, I'm in a relationship with him. And so I'm letting him in on my own mind and heart. And God invites Abraham into this moment because they have a relationship, a partnership where they share in a mission together. But God says that the decision to share this moment with Abraham isn't just because they know each other and have a relationship, but there's a bigger purpose to it. And that is that he will teach his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord, to walk in the way of Yahweh. Remember, we've just read about this in the Shema prayer, right? And so this line, this conversation between Abraham and, and God is an is a anticipation. It's looking forward to what will, will get said later on in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he says, what I want from you is to listen to me and obey from the heart to follow my way, to keep my way. Now, this phrase, keeping the way of the Lord, is kind of, it's, it seems a little obscure to us. What does it mean? Well, it draws out kind of two pictures. And the two pictures, first of all, the first picture that keeping the way of the Lord kind of draws for us is it's following someone on a, a path. It's watching someone's footsteps meticulously and then following after them. I think about camping this summer. We, we took our kids, there were actually a gang of kids around us, and we had a creek right behind where our tents were, and the kids were you know, all into playing it, and there were tons of rocks, and it was a nice little safe creek for little people to be in, which was pretty sweet. But the kids wanted to know, like, how, what's the best way to get across? Like, show us the way to get across. And so I'd take my kids, and I would go on a like kind of a pathfinding mission first, right? And you like check out the wobbly rocks and I'd go put my weight on the rocks that they could put their weight on and if it held me, it would hold them and, and so I'd show them which way to get across the creek and, and then they would just follow and then fall in if, and all that kind of stuff because then they lost attention and focus and that's okay. I just changed their clothes after. But, right? And so we just, they would follow my footsteps. And, and you think about this, like my job was to make sure the path was right, to make sure it could hold them up. Their job was to make sure they were watching. Uh, God is never asking us to step out in a path where he, he wants us to falter. He always calls us into a path that will bring us good, not harm. God leads us in his own way because he wants our lives to be sturdy. He wants us to stand firm in our life. And, and so he leads us into what's good, no matter what the appearances are. And so you think about watching someone's path and following it. The second picture is that of following directions to a destination. It's like listening to Siri on your way to somewhere new and hoping that Siri gets it right. 
Both of these pictures, though, kind of bring together this single comprehensive idea of someone who is looking at God and, and trying to be like Him. It's about mimicking Him and, and resembling His character. It's as if life is a giant wheel of impressions on The Tonight Show, but the only impression that matters is looking like God Himself and His character and His actions and His words and all that He is. And so there are often times where we're tempted to mimic other gods, small g gods. God says, keep the way of the Lord, keep my way, imitate me, become someone who shamas, who listens so intently as, uh, in order to follow and actually mimic me. So pay attention to the kind of God I am so that you can imitate my character. That's what he's saying to Abraham. And in our story today, God then defines that and fills that out for us so that we understand more of what that means. God uses two words. It's often a word pair in the Old Testament. It's righteousness and justice. Look at verse 19. I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And these, these two words in Hebrew, it's sadaqah and mishpat. You can say that with me, it's fun. Sadaqah and mishpat. Sounds kind of like I'm hungry if somebody passed the mishpat. Did you remember to season it with sadaqah? Like it's kind of, anyway, but it's, it's righteousness and justice is what this is. And, and so these two words are super important to the rest of the Old Testament and then they get amplified in the New Testament as well. And talk about that. But what do they mean? Because they're kind of abstract ideas in English, but in Hebrew, they're concrete words. They're action-oriented words. It, righteousness is this. Uh, righteousness is doing whatever is right in a given situation, in a given situ- uh, relationship. It's doing what is right. Um, I think about my wife making sure I'm righteous when it comes time to write the tip uh, at dinner, right? Like, my natural inclination is not so righteous. And she's like, hey, let's go to 20%. That means a little bit more than your measly 10%, right? So, okay, so uh, the right thing in a right given relationship, uh, it's community life with all relationships, my relationship with God, others, myself, creation, well-ordered, full of shalom, that's peace and harmony, and flourishing as God has designed. That's righteousness. And a righteous person is the person who cultivates and lives that life. This is what Abraham's to do. Keeping the way of the Lord means to be righteous and to do righteousness in each relationship he has. The second word, mishpat, is kind of a fun word as well. And this is more about doing what's needed to restore people and situations to what is right. So if it's like righteousness in some ways, the status we're trying to achieve, justice is an action we do to move us there. Uh, justice is this, it's inconveniencing myself for the sake of the, quote, worthless person. It's the, especially the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the poor. Uh, the, the, the Bible is saying, look, injustice is keeping my stuff for my own comfort, but doing justice is saying I'm willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of someone the world deems worthless, but God says is full of worth because they're made in my image and I love them. And so this is what Abraham is called into. He's called into keeping the way of the Lord, following his footsteps by doing two things, sadaqah and mishpat. 
And that is something that the entire Abraham community is called into. It's the story we are called to write with God. And so these are always intended to come together. To, to do biblical justice means also to have righteousness. Okay? It's not just about good actions, but it's also about right relationship and right attitude. Kids, you see this happen all the time. You see injustice in lots of little ways that feel pretty big, don't you, kids? You see other kids calling names or being mean or not letting another kid play the game with you. You see the kids sitting alone. They're excluded and they're not allowed to be a part of whatever is going on. And these things don't feel right, do they, kids? You look in on the situation and you go, I wouldn't like that, right? I wouldn't like that at all. And so, where there are those kinds of things, God is calling you to partner with him in doing sadaqah and mishpat. It means stopping the name-calling and saying things like, hey, let's not do that, right? Or it's like inviting the, the kid into the game. Or high school students, you have tremendous power to come around the lonely. You have tremendous power to support the kid who nobody eats lunch with this September, come around side them and to just get to know them. Give them dignity by paying attention to them. And, and these kinds of things are all around us. It happens too in our adult community as, as a church family when we step into situations where vulnerable people need help. It happens where families open their homes to foster kids. It happens when community groups come along and support people who can't bear the burden in their lives and in their circumstances alone. It happens when we offer love to those who are crying out, who offer that outcry that God hears and is moved to act on. It happens when we say that my time and my comfort are less important than a messed up situation being made right with what God has given me. And this passage continues and it goes on and Abraham gives us an example of what it means to step into righteousness and justice and keeping the way of the Lord. Abraham is willing to risk his life to intercede for the innocent. It says down here that the men turned in verse 22 and went towards Sodom, but Abram stood before the Lord. He stays in this place of relationship with God in the face of injustice. And Abraham draws near, it says, and he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And he, he, he prays here, and he engages the situation. And so, what we see here is Abraham is this picture of someone who's doing righteousness and justice. They're partnering with the righteous and just God, willing to inconvenience himself for the sake of others. He's willing to take a personal risk to help bring justice into a bad situation. So I want to do this this morning. I want to show you just practically what is involved in Abraham's response of keeping God's way. First thing that happens is Abraham assesses the situation. He, begun, he becomes aware of the need. So many of us become inoculated or immune to need because we're focused on my schedule, my reputation, my comfort, my things. But when we're engaging God and we're getting his heart on things, he'll start to move our eyes towards others. 
And so it begins with just a simple awareness of there's a need here. There is judgment coming on a city. I'm going to pay attention to that and assess this situation. But he doesn't stop there. He, he, he becomes engaged in justice. And, and for you and I to become engaged with justice, we, we have to start having eyes for injustice. We have to start looking around and saying, that's probably not the way it should be. That's not flourishing as God has designed. How can I step in tangibly to bring about what God has designed and for his good? So we have to become people who listen for the outcry. The second thing he does is he goes beyond assessing the situation. He goes beyond awareness and then he engages he moves toward engagement. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. It's, there's a giant chasm between awareness and engagement for most of us. And that chasm consists usually of one of two things. It's commentary, like, ah, oh, I became aware of something, and so I'm just going to make some comments about it. And it's like, it's interesting. We can share it with some people around us, and it kind of makes us feel like, yeah, I know about something that's really gnarly. Good big need. Right? And so we offer our commentary sometimes. We're just... That's one option. The other one is we can become very self-righteous, too. We can look into the situation and go, that's really unfortunate they got themselves there. I would never do that. And so those kind of things stop us from moving into engagement. But what does Abraham do? He moves in towards engagement by doing three things. Let me show you what these are. First of all, he invests. He invests himself in the situation. He takes a move toward Sodom. He could have stayed in his camp, and yet he walks with God. And walking with God means moving toward others. He moves toward Sodom. He's willing to move outside of his own camp to become open to somebody else. He takes an interest in God's concern with the outcry and the situation. He invests himself in finding out what does righteousness look like in this situation. Kids, one of the things that you can do to invest like Abraham is to ask, what would it feel like? What would it feel like if I were that person? What would it feel like if somebody was talking to me like that? Is there anything I can do to make that better? Okay? And then he goes beyond just investing. He intercedes for Sodom. I think this is phenomenal. He could have looked on with judgment and said, you're right, those wicked people. But he, he's, he wants something more here. He moves God toward them. He steps in and he wants to move the hands of God. He prays. He, he talks to God about the plight of this situation and these people. He wants to move God's hands for their behalf. This is often missed with a lot of us when we move into social justice moments where we think, let's get our, our feet dirty, let's move, let's get stuff done. And yet, if we don't stop and get God's heart, if we don't stop and get in touch with God to, to move Him and, and to be moved by Him in prayer, we're not going to have full justice and full righteousness because He's a part of what righteousness means. And so prayer is where we explore God's heart for others. And you see that situation that's wrong, kids, and it's good to grab like a, a, an adult you trust and say, can we pray about this? And we ask Jesus to help in the situation. It's an easy step, right? To say, hey... Let's pray. Let's ask Jesus to help here. Right? Ask him what he wants to do in us and through us. But he, he doesn't stop at intercession. He doesn't just stop with prayer. He moves on to uh, what I'm calling invitation. Abraham invites the city now to move toward God. And let me show you how this breaks down. 
this is this kind of mysterious passage where there's kind of almost like a haggling seeming to happen between God and Abraham. Uh, but it's really just an Abraham pushing into and exploring God's own character. And look at what's going on here. Abraham's concerned about the wicked being spared for the sake of the righteous. He wants to see the wicked invited into a relationship with God. Um, re- really, he's looking at a way for, is, is it possible for the city to be redeemed? Will God be willing to look on a few righteous people and pardon the many wicked? This is what Abraham's asking. Right? So uh, this week I looked at probably a dozen or more commentaries, and one of the more helpful ones was this uh, very technical commentary where uh, this guy points out that the word spare, when God says, uh, for the sake of 50 righteous, I will spare the city, that word spare also means forgive in other contexts. In fact, when God describes himself in Exodus 34 to Moses, and he says uh, he is the God who forgives transgression, iniquity, and sin, it's the same word as God uses for spare. See, when God says, I will spare the place, he's talking about a reconciled relationship where there, was, where there was a problem before. He's talking about reconciliation and forgiveness here. In other words, what's happening here in this conversation with Abraham and God is there's an invitation for the wicked to find forgiveness by identifying with the righteous, by coming in solidarity with the righteous. Forgiveness happens by way of association with the righteous, it seems. It's as if the righteous are like a concentrated detergent that you think will never get the stains out. And yet it works its way through the entire load. And it comes out clean. It's like a, it's remarkable. One old German scholar, his name's really fun to say, it's Gerhard von Rad. He says this, that so prominent is God's will to save over his will to punish. Okay? Abraham is saying this, look, is my only hope my own record? Or does the righteousness loving God love righteousness so much that the righteousness of someone else could save me? That's what he's asking here. How far will this principle go? I mean, God, do you love right, the righteousness of 30, of, of 20, of 10 people so much that you'll cover the unrighteousness of the many, that you'll spare, you'll forgive the unrighteous many? And get this, friends. To Abraham's astonishment, over and over and over, the answer of God is, yes, so great is my my desire to save and to rescue over my desire to punish, that, that I can love the righteousness of a few and with it cover the unrighteousness of many. Do you see what's going on in this passage? It's incredible. It's amazing. Abraham has gotten this principle. He's saying, or he's not saying, oh God, would you sweep the sin under the rug? Would you ignore the outcry and just look the other way, forget your righteousness? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, could the righteousness loving God so love the righteousness of a few that those with whom the righteous identify, or the unrighteous identify with, and they would be forgiven? Could the righteous few cover the unrighteous many? And God seems to be saying, yeah, 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 yeah. And here's what's crazy about this story. Abraham starts counting at 50, and then 45, and then 40, and then 30, and then 20, and then 10, and then he goes home. Why why quit at 10? Why not go all the way and find out, will God pardon the unrighteous many for the righteous one? Will he? One preacher I read this week says, it's like somebody's playing a a scale, you know, a, 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 um, a music scale, and they stop like 
a couple notes shy of the full scale and then just put down the instrument. You're just left with this dissonant chord. And, and, and so the reader is left anticipating this question, what about one righteous? But you see, Abraham had gotten the principle. The righteous God would forgive the unrighteous. That the, the righteousness of someone could save an unrighteous person. But the problem was even the best people in Sodom, right? Abraham's nephew Lot, he only had comparative righteousness. He was only relatively more righteous than those really bad people in Sodom. But he was still wicked too. See, Abraham needed the right righteous one. He needed the one who was truly righteous. And friends, this is the good news of what the Bible is telling us. That the one righteous one has come. That the righteousness loving God has come in person. In Jesus Christ, he's taken on flesh. That a truly righteous person has come to reconcile unrighteous sinners to himself by taking up solidarity with the wicked. That through the death of Jesus Christ, God is both the one who is just and the one who makes people just who makes unrighteous people right in relationship to him. 2 Corinthians 5 says that for our sake, Christ became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it's really in Jesus Christ that Sadaka and Mishpat come together, that righteousness and justice meet. So you can have relative justice But until you have a reconciled relationship with the God who creates you, loves you, and rescues you, you you don't really have things as they ought to be. You don't have shalom. You can have food and shelter and equal rights, but if you remain estranged from your ruler, you only have a taste of justice. You don't have the whole package. You have a taste of it, but there's always the full circle that's meant to be taken in, and that is a relationship with the one who's repaired what's broken between you and him. That is through the justice of the cross where we are offered complete forgiveness. Are you with me? Amen. What a gift. And that's what we celebrate. We celebrate this righteousness loving God coming to rescue the wicked, to bring about justice and righteousness. You see, we celebrate at communion that God has come in person to take on what's broken in us into himself and give us his healing. See, Abraham prayed for those who were cruel, but Jesus Christ prayed for those who were killing him. Abraham risked his life. Jesus Christ laid it down willingly. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, he said. Jesus lays his life down for you and I so that you and I could get in on God's rescue rather than his judgment. And he came as the, the final fulfillment of this promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. And his family, the family of Jesus Christ, who find faith in him, believe that what he's done for them, uh, it gets them into a a family that, that is designed to extend that blessing wherever we're sent. And so we gather at the table to declare that before God on our own, we are flawed, but in Christ, in the righteous one, we're clean, we're righteous, forgiven, and welcomed. No matter how much you look like Sodom beforehand, And so at this table, we declare as well that as a community, we're sent to keep the way of the Lord. 
that we intend to lay ourselves down for righteousness and justice in the name and the power of the one who laid his life down for us. And so in a moment, we'll welcome you to the table to come and, and to celebrate that reality. And to take it in again and say, I belong to the one who is righteous. And through him, I'm made right. And I'm invited into a story where I'm sent to do justice in the world. We welcome the kids who are ready to take communion, to take communion with your parents. If you're not ready yet, if you feel like your kids aren't at that place, that's okay. If they, th- we actually printed out a blessing for you to pray over your kids if you have a family here today. Uh, and, and so Allie's going to create some space where we can just stop and pray before the Lord and bless your kids. And if, you, if you're here, you don't have kids. You, you have no kids attached to you. Like, you can go have lunch wherever you want next, and that's great. But the other thing you can do is you, you can pray blessings over kids around you and over any kid you know. Would you do that? Would we come to the table and celebrate the righteous one who for the sake of the many unrighteous laid down his life for us? Let's find our hope and our joy and our peace in him today at his table. Let's pray. Lord, the righteous one, we love you. Our hearts are nourished again at your table and we we take this bread remembering your body given for us and we take the cup remembering your blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sin. We seek your presence at the table and your grace here and we ask for your strength to be your people in the world, to keep your way, to hear you and obey you from the heart because you've won our hearts by your own mercy and love that you've shown us and we celebrate at the table. Amen. Come and take the bread and cup on your own when you are ready.